Hello, my wonderful people, and welcome back to the Unqualified Wisdoms Podcast, your one-stop shop for glorified hot takes on societal and cultural discussions. First of all, I wish you all a happy Pride Month. I originally wanted to create a mini-series of shorter, less research-intense podcast episodes to commemorate the start of Pride Month, touching on a variety of topics around pride and the LGBTQ plus community, You know, life happens, and you don't get to do the things you set out to do. But I still plan on releasing one or two more episodes by the end of the month on LGBTQ plus topics. But, you know, hold your expectations that I'm only a one-man army, you know. It's just one guy doing all of this. But back to where I was going. You know, we already entered the third week of Pride Month by now. How time flies. You know, Pride Month has become quite a important time for me over the last couple of years as a queer person. Originally, before I came out, it signified an aspiration I had, you know, to have the ability to live proudly and truthfully. And over time, it's become a period of time in which I have an opportunity to reflect over and remember the events that brought us to where we are now. And that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about right now. The history and the events that have brought us to having Pride Month today. What is the history of Pride? And how did we get here? But first, I must clarify a couple of things before we get started. And this specifically goes out to all my queer people out there. But most people can gain something at least from listening to this. You know, for a lot of queer people out there who don't have a large or diverse circle of other queer LGBTQ plus friends, or haven't had an opportunity to go to one of the larger Pride events out there, you know, in in real life, uh, or other queer people that mostly only interact with queer people online and participate in a lot of online queer discussions, I want to impart a couple of words to you. Now, you have to be aware cognizant of how diverse and varied the LGBTQ plus community is. Some of the people that were instrumental in giving us the freedoms we have today might hold certain views or use certain terminology that we might see as problematic nowadays. And if you end up going to a pride event, you might be met face first with people that don't adhere to the norms we have created in online spaces. You might come across um, people from small towns that still use terminology such as transsexual, uh, gender non-conforming people that don't quite fit your mental image of what they should look like or act like. You might meet local queer rights advocates that highlight the history and importance of the fetish scene, you know, Kink has such a, a vital and historical role in the LGBTQ plus community, such as the leather community, which were instrumental in the fighting for the freedoms and rights we have today. Often, experiences like that will challenge your worldview and allow you to broaden your horizon. And for some people, your first instinct might be, formulating posts online and thinking about how problematic apparently pride has become and that shouldn't be the way you approach these types of things 
you should be much more appreciative of the variety and diverseness of the LGBTQ plus community. Because it's not just what's happening on Twitter or Instagram or, sh- or happening online. You know, there are people out there existing and living out their truth proudly and bravely. Even if there is an opposition and stigma that they have to face. And I'm going to be quoting a couple of historical LGBTQ rights advocates and sharing resources that might use certain language we wouldn't anymore today. Because if you are a queer person, you know that the language we use is continuously evolving. And what once was the norm can quickly become antiquated and insulting in some cases. Or we, we might even be aware of the fact that languages have different terminology used for different things. In some languages, the, the words we use nowadays just simply do not exist. And therefore, if they're speaking English to you on the online world, they might not have the same, termin- same terminology as you do. Take the word queer as an example. It used to be used in a derogatory manner. So much so that a lot of elder LGBTQ plus people do not use the word to describe themselves. But it's now become somewhat of a catch-all to describe all LGBTQ plus people. And these people I might quote and talk about have been instrumental in the fight for our rights. A great example of that would be Jean O'Leary, a lesbian rights advocate that was at the forefront of the gay rights movement back in the early 70s, but held transphobic views at the time. But I'll talk more about O'Leary later on in the episode as she comes into a topic I want to discuss. Now that I've gotten the foreword out there, out of the way, why don't I start talking about the history of Pride? Now, for most of you, you'll most likely have a few things pop into your head when I asked, what led to the creation of Pride Month? You'll most likely think of the Stonewall Inn. You might think of somebody throwing a brick at police officers. You'll most likely picture a riot in your mind, a violent confrontation between patrons and police. You might even think of Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Rivera. And some of you might even know Stormy DeLarvery. What's been appearing a lot on social media are posts that boil down to saying that we celebrate pride because a trans woman of color threw a brick at police in 1969 and the ensuing riots led to queer people getting the rights they deserve. There's often this hyper-focus on specific details of the history that is passed along. Often people talk about a brick, a Molotov cocktail, or just a glass being thrown at police officers. And that that led to a confrontation between the patrons of Stonewall and the police. You might ask yourself why it's bad to only focus on specific details of what happened at Stonewall, or why we should nitpick at getting the whole history. And I'll tell you, we often glamorize and push narratives to fit our idea of what transpired. But this will occlude the real history of the event. We focus on trans women of color being highly present and involved because we want to acknowledge the enormous contribution non-white trans and gender non-conforming people had on the entirety of the gay rights movement. But that doesn't conform to the full reality of the past. 
trans people and gender non-conforming people and people of color were often ostracized and not involved or more often asked not to be present due to rampant transphobia and racism that were very prevalent in society. And I'll further expand on this erasure and exclusion later, but this doesn't erase the importance that these people had on the movement. But we have to hold on to accurate descriptions of history, because there are conflicting accounts, as most of it is oral history. It was a messy event, and we'll most likely never know the full picture. But we should hold on to the facts that we do know. But before I tell you about what happened at Stonewall, I want to paint you a picture of the situation queer people were facing back in those times. People often credit the start of the gay rights movement to the riots that occurred at Stonewall. But the activism and advocacy started much earlier than that. The worldwide gay rights movement started back in 1897 in Berlin with the founding of the Scientific Humanitarian Committee and the World League of Sexual Reform by Magnus Hirschfeld, which advocated for both gay and trans rights. While the movement in the US was started because after World War II, there was a strong anti-communist sentiment. And that sentiment evolved into a fear of what secrets US government employees could be hiding that could be easily used against them for blackmail. So Congress decided to require the registration of what they refer to as subversive groups which according to them would be easy to blackmail, and that included homosexual individuals. So in 1950, the US State Department, in all of its magnificence, note the sarcasm, decided to declare homosexuals as a security risk and started the mass firing of homosexual people at a federal, state, and local government levels. Yay, don't you love being referred to as subversive by your own government? And this was the start of the era where politically motivated police raids on gay bars started in the US, and the enactment of laws which prohibited cross-dressing for both men and women, and even dancing with people of the same sex could get you arrested in those times. Which led to multiple things that had enormous impact on how gay rights movements started. In 1950, the same year the State Department enacted its grand law declaring homosexuals a security risk, the first recognized and long-standing American gay rights group was created, called the Mattachine Society. It was founded by Harry Hay and a few of his friends. Hay was a vital advocate for gay rights at the time, but his legacy has not remained unblemished. But for reasons that involve my podcast not getting removed from the internet and putting me on some type of government watch list, I recommend you look up Harry Hay, just to see his legacy and his intense controversies. Not to take away from the work the Mattachine Society did, they did amazing work in gay rights advocacy, but we oftentimes have to be aware of how historical figures had, you know, some types of leanings that are, to say the least, problematic. But back to the main topic at hand. Much like there was a first, um organization to advocate for gay men's rights in the U.S., there was also the first lesbian rights organization, which was the Daughters of Bilitis, which was founded in 1955 in San Francisco. 
Both organizations together were incredibly important for the gay liberation movement and the organizations of marches, protests, and parades associated with Pride. I highly recommend you research them yourself, as I could talk for hours about each of these organizations. Look, I've already wasted enough of your time, so let me start talking about what actually happened in the early morning hours of the 28th of June, 1969, at the Stonewall Inn. Now, the Stonewall Inn was a gay bar located in the Greenwich Village in New York City. It's situated in the West Village, which was a safe haven for many queer people at the time, especially around Christopher Street. People often say that it was a beloved institution of LGBTQ plus people, but according to patrons that frequented the bar that were present on the night of the event, it was actually, and I quote, a hellhole, a dump, and it was mafia run. Which is an interesting side note, as most, if not all, gay bars were mafia run at the time. As the mob would say, they provide protection against police raids, and they were the only ones that rented establishments to queer people. I think you can imagine what it must have been like to rent from the mob. Well, it was certainly not fun. But, you know, people felt accepted, so they kept going back. So tangenting back from the little side note, let's go back onto what happened in the early morning hours. So a little after midnight on the 28th of June 1969, eight police officers entered the Stonewall Inn and proceeded to arrest the bar staff for selling alcohol without a liquor license. And in the process started to line up patrons to check their IDs. During this process, the police took advantage of a law at the time that allowed them to arrest women for not wearing three articles of gender-appropriate clothing and men for cross-dressing or being in drag. Now, your guess is as good as mine as to what exactly accounts for an article of gender-appropriate clothing, but it was a politically motivated law to torment queer people. This was also apparently the third such raid on a Greenwich Village gay bar in a very short time span. Now normally the police would give the bar a tip-off that there's going to be a raid that night so they can hide all their alcohol and things like that. In exchange, the police would receive money that the mafia that ran the bar usually extorted from their wealthy queer patrons that were associated with Wall Street or the stock market in general. Interestingly, there didn't seem to be a police tip-off that night for the Stonewall Inn. You know what, there is actually a lot of detail about the Stonewall Riot on the Wikipedia page about the Stonewall Riot. I'd recommend you look at that if you want a lot more details about how the arrests occurred. But if I were to include all the details that led up to the arrests, I'd probably be here for at least four hours. So I'll summarize the following details to get it to a more concise, digestible length. Now, at this point, when the police starts entering and questioning and checking IDs, history starts to get a bit hazy. There are multiple accounts from different people, some contradicting each other about how exactly the situation between the patrons of Stonewall and the police escalated. This is where the idea that a brick, a Molotov cocktail, or just a glass being thrown 
by either uh, Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Rivera originated, and people believe that this act of throwing something at police led to the formation of a mob that attacked the officers and also overturned their vehicles. But that's not actually what occurred that night. What we know is that there was a fight that broke out between a woman and four police officers. Now this woman, as described by patrons, was a typical New York butch. And what had happened was, is police had tried to arrest her and dragged her into a police wagon multiple times from which she had fled. After this individual was hit on the head by a baton and then being pushed back towards the vehicle, this woman, whose identity remains unknown, but many people believe was Stormy Delarvery, a bouncer at Stonewall Inn, as she herself both confirmed at one point but later denied as well. But this woman looked at bystanders and shouted, Why don't you guys do something? Which led the crowd to become a mob and start attacking police officers. There was no leaders, no organization, no strict motive for the confrontation. It was purely spontaneous and very much erratic. The idea of a brick being thrown at police most likely originates from the fact that bystanders started throwing debris at the police in pennies or bottles after the confrontation started, and there happened to be a construction site in the vicinity of the riot which led some people to start grabbing construction materials and throwing it at the police, which most likely could have included bricks. But the throwing of a brick was not what started the violent confrontation. As a response to people throwing things at them, the police decided to barricade themselves inside the Stonewall Inn and took some detainees they had arrested with them. Now, the barricade itself ended up being breached multiple times by the crowd. And during this process, the Stonewall Inn was actually set on fire by unidentified people, but later was extinguished in time for it not to be completely destroyed. But during the time police officers were barricaded inside the Stonewall Inn, the TPF, aka the Tactical Patrol Force of the NYPD, arrived at the scene of Stonewall. Now, the TPF freed the officer from inside the barricade and started to engage with people demonstrating and fighting back in front of Stonewall. The fighting lasted for another about four hours until nearly 4 a.m., by which point dozens of people had been arrested and the streets had mostly been cleared. The following night, the second night of riots, Thousands of people gathered in front of Stonewall, which had decided to reopen as an act of defiance, which led to Christopher Street being completely overrun by people that started to spread out into adjacent blocks. Once again, what had occurred the previous night, people started lighting trash cans on fire, people started to sing and dance and demonstrate all throughout the area. And more than 100 police officers appeared to try and, what they say, contain the crowd with very violent means. And once again, the TPF reappeared and through violent means ended up clearing the streets of participants of the riot. Following these two days of continuous demonstrations and confrontations, the next two days have mostly sporadic activity in Greenwich Village. The police and residents had some altercations, 
but not much else occurred. What interestingly happened was that some older members of the gay community were outraged at the occurrences at Stonewall, but not for the reasons you might imagine. These people were of the opinion and belief that the participants of the Stonewall riots were tarnishing the image of homosexuals not being different from heterosexuals. With Randy Wicker, who marched in the first gay picket lines before the White House in 1965, saying that, and I quote, Screaming queens forming chorus lines and kicking went against everything that I wanted people to think about homosexuals that were a bunch of drag queens in the village acting disorderly and tacky and cheap. Now this attitude greatly emphasizes a deeper attitude change that was beginning to occur within the gay community. It also highlights a elitism and superiority complex that some gay people had, and some even still have to this day, against the more queer and radical members of the LGBTQ plus community. We know that most of the participants of the first and second day of rioting were queer youth that mostly lived on the street, and also many street queens, sex workers, and gender nonconforming people that were seen as outcasts or too extreme for the more mainstream gay community. That doesn't mean there were there weren't other people that were participating, more mainstream gay people. But we know that the most vocal people that participated in those riots were these outcasts of the community. Now, the following days, the last days, were more diverse in the crowd that it attracted. It also included anti-war protesters, civil rights activists, and many more people with differing ideologies. The Wednesday that followed Stonewall marked the last day that had major participation in a protest. That day, the Village Voice, a newspaper in the Greenwich Village, ran a report about the Stonewall riots that had a very unflattering description of the events and its participants, calling them forces of faggotry, limp-wristed, and Sunday fag follies. In response to the insulting description of participants, people descended again on Christopher Street, where the Village Voice was headquartered, and started threatening to burn it down. All of this ended up leading to another street battle occurring between demonstrators and police, with this marking the last true day of the Stonewall Riots. Now I want to jump back to touch on the mythalization to create this mythology of the events at Stonewall. And I want to again touch on this to focus on, you know, focusing the entire narrative on individual persons starting the riot with a single action. People often attribute the starting of the confrontation to people such as Marsha P. Johnson and Sofia Rivera, as I've mentioned a few times already. This is most likely due to the fact that people want to acknowledge the importance of trans people, especially trans people of color, and the role they had in the gay rights movement. But Johnson herself has stated in interviews that she was uptown during the start of the confrontation at Stonewall Inn and only arrived at the scene a few hours later. 
Likewise, many say that Rivera wasn't even at Stonewall that night. People often like to mythologize Rivera and Johnson for the work they have done, but we have to remember that it doesn't matter if they were present at that event. Rivera and Johnson did wonderful work in advocacy for homeless queer youth, gender nonconforming individuals, and also sex workers with their organization STAR, as well as Johnson being a founding member of the Gay Liberation Front. So they had enormous contribution to the movement, irrespective of the fact that they might not have been present for the riots at Stonewall Inn. I would like to read you an excerpt from an article, which I've linked in the description, by Chrysanthemum Tran, published online in Them, which links this sentiment of highlighting specific individuals to the queer rights movement. So here it goes. Delarverie's own denial of sparking the uprising should challenge us to reconsider our community's obsession with crediting the start of the riots to a singular person. This focus on the first punch, brick, Molotov cocktail is intended to refute revisionist histories that undermine the labor of transgender women and lesbians of color, neither of which are mutually exclusive, within the LGBTQ plus community. But in our attempts to counter revisionism by uplifting the work and impact of LGBTQ plus women of color, we create and normalize false histories that fail to accurately recognize their legacies and those of countless others who jeopardize their lives to resist the police. We should acknowledge Delarverie, Johnson, Rivera, and Griffin Gracie, not just for their involvement in the Stonewall Uprising, but for their lifelong work of organizing and activism. These women's legacy did not begin or end with Stonewall. By mythologizing such historic activists, we paint them as superhuman figures who could not possibly be or have been flawed or complicated people. But more importantly, we fail to recognize that Stonewall and the movement it sparked was, at heart, a collective uprising. One that cannot be attributed to a single person or a small group of people. To do so erases the effort of many other people who fought for the cause of queer liberation. Long quote, I know, but it puts the sentiment I want to share into words. This also plays in and connects with rumors and long-held beliefs that the death of Judy Garland contributed to the riots at Stonewall. Now, Judy Garland's wake had occurred the day before Stonewall, on the 27th of July, 1969. So some people connected the death of a beloved figure of the gay community to a possible heightened emotional state that could have facilitated anger boiling over during the riot at Stonewall. Now, I'm not going to say that it's impossible that her death influenced some people into being in a more emotional state that pushed them to participate in the riot, but I honestly feel like that that would be an insult to the work so many people did in the past that influenced the gay rights movement. Also, participants of the riot, historians, and advocates push back on this narrative, and find that the focus on Judy Garland is quite damaging and it trivializes the main catalysts for the riot, which were constant abuse, harassment, and discrimination. Additionally, not many people know this, 
The Stonewall Riots weren't just a one-day event. They lasted from the 28th of June down to the 3rd of July, with continuous confrontations and demonstrations. The riots were a catalyst for the establishment of one of the most influential groups in the fighting for queer rights, which was the Gay Liberation Front. I'll be referring to the Gay Liberation Front henceforth as the GLF. Why do I say the GLF was so important? Well, it was the first organization to use the word gay in their name. You know, other homophile and gay rights groups masked their real purpose by deliberately choosing obscure names, like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Bellides. This was, um, and pardon my usage of the term, a cultural reset. Queer people didn't want to have to act all sweet and prim and proper. They had it with the mild actions of the established organizations. The GLF had a hand in the organization planning of the first three simultaneous pride marches that occurred on the first anniversary of Stonewall. With marches occurring on the 28th of June 1970 in Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco. Oh, and there was also a pride march, a pride march in Chicago on that day. Now, some may say that the GLF disbanded within four months, but there were plenty of local and regional chapters that remained active for years to come. And from the so-called ashes of the GLF, there was another significant organization that was founded, which was the Gay Activist Alliance. Now, the gay pride marches that were hosted were named pride marches, as they stood in sharp contrast to the prevailing attitude of shame queer people had had at the time. The sentiment being echoed at the time reflected what Frank Kameny had written a few years back in 1965. Kameny was an influential gay rights activist who coincidentally wasn't a big fan of the more radical and visible ideas that the GLF and the GAA had in the beginning. He originally wanted the actions of gay rights organizations to be somewhat puritanical, demonstrated by his actions at the Mattachine Society's annual picket in front of the Independence Hall in Philadelphia on the 4th of July 1969, where he asked participating men in suits and women in dresses not to hold hands with their same-sex partners, as they might give off the wrong image, in his opinion. As this event was only happening a few days after the Stonewall Riots, participants felt empowered and wanted to show themselves off with more pride, but Kameny was scared of the optics. But he wrote something in 1965, way before this occurred, that did capture the spirit of the early Pride Marches. He wrote, We are right. Those who oppose us are both factually and morally wrong. We are the true authorities on homosexuality. Whether we are accepted as such or not, we must demand our rights, boldly, not beg cringingly for mere privileges, and not be satisfied with crumbs tossed to us. A sentiment I still believe holds true to this day. The Christopher Street Day March in New York on the first anniversary of the Stonewall Riots and all other marches occurring in other cities, showed off a confrontation between the public and queer people. And such confrontations, 
this disruption of public life, these challenges of morals, and the visibility gained are what truly brought change. But what these marches have not always been is inclusive of all. Things such as race, class, ideology, and gender expression became a frequent obstacle in the years following Stonewall, which is highlighted by Jean O'Leary, who I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, and her speech at the Christopher Street Day March in 1973. Directly after Barbara Giddings held an enthusiastic speech praising the diversity of the participating crowd, Jean O'Leary came to the stage and held a speech in protest of the inclusion of drag queens and people whom she referred to as cross-dressers, which were mostly trans people, as she believed that they were mocking women with their attendance at these events. Her anti-trans speech got Sylvia Rivera and Lee Brewster to become so enraged that they forced their way onto the stage to criticize the erasure and exclusion of trans people and drag queens from the LGBTQ rights movement, with Sylvia stating, You go to bars because of what drag queens did for you, and these bitches tell us to quit being ourselves? Most drag queens and lesbian feminists left the event in disgust at the remarks made. Now, O'Leary would later on lament and regret her views, but this just highlights a common phenomena experienced by the LGBTQ plus community, which this is, which is this continuous form of infighting about who we should include. You know, we often negotiate and fight for benefits that end up only aiding a select segment of the community. Oftentimes the very white, very middle class, very easily acceptable part of the community. While we sweep the tougher issues surrounding more complex topics under the rug. Like trans activist and author of Stone Butch Blues, Leslie Feinberg once wrote, A timid denial that we're not all like that only serves to weaken the entire fight-back movement. We can never throw enough people overboard to win approval from our enemies. And I feel like that is very poignant. You know, we've come a long way, greatly expanded the struggles that we fight for, and now we're becoming ever more intersectional and campaigning on multiple fronts, especially nowadays the issues plaguing non-binary and intersex people, and they have finally gained a larger focus. But, there's this continuous fight on how we should approach the people that oppress us, the people we have to fight against. And I feel like how um, Leslie puts it, we always have that sentiment that we're trying to distance ourselves from these complex issues, you know, saying like, oh no, we're not all like that, which pulls in the entire discussion when we talk about pride, about kink at pride and all those types of things. Still to this day, we have that you know, fight within the community about who is more acceptable and how we should push our community, our community's image in a way that's going to appease people that do not like us. And while, you know, trying to make us more digestible might seem like the first and easiest step to take, we will never, you know, reach a point at which 
we are easily acceptable for anybody around the world because bigots will continue being bigots. They won't change their opinion of us from, you know, one day to the next. And therefore, we have to be radical about the way we approach these type of things. We can't always use the, the strategy of being like, oh no, we're normal, you know, your normal is our normal. We can't have that anymore. And nowadays, many look at pride today and only see a great big party. That's, I feel, um, a continuous emotional state people have and they look at things they're like pride is just this great big party that people participate in in june you know and we all celebrate happy go lucky we listen to lady gaga ariana and we do our thing but i feel like that is such a simplistic view of what's actually occurring because pride has always and will always continue to be a political event you look at pride parades and events You have to see that they act as an opportunity for us to, for example, register queer people to vote, familiarize them with policies that are important to them. We have to see these types of situations occurring because we always see, we see protests, we see people demanding actions, you see organizations like ACT UP continuously fighting for the community and the sub uh, the mo- the least visible subsections of the community. You know, we have an opportunity to share history and give visibility to all facets of the queer community. And as many of us in parts of the Western world become somewhat complacent, we have to remember that the fight is still not won. As Human Rights Watch has reported, there are still at least 69 countries that have national laws criminalizing same-sex relationships between consenting adults. And at least 9 countries with national laws that criminalize forms of gender expression that target transgender and gender non-conforming people. So we will continue to fight and push back against discrimination. And I hope you do too. I hope you enjoyed that little deep dive into the history of Pride and the Stonewall Riots. I hope you learned something new about queer history, because surely you're not going to learn any of this at school with all of these laws being passed to exclude queer history from school curriculums. But we fight our battles, we share our history with people, and I hope you at least gain something from listening to the history of Pride and learning a little bit about a little bit more about what occurred that night at the Stonewall Inn and how it led to riots that then caused the formation of these organizations that fought for the establishment of the first couple of pride marches that nowadays have become the pride parades we see every year in June. Well, I think I've said my piece, so I'll end it here. As always, I have included my sources and resources down in the description, And I wish you all the best and have a happy rest of your Pride Month.